Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. We are in the season of Advent, and Advent is a time that we prepare ourselves for Jesus' return. We know that we believe as Christians that Jesus is returning, that we have that hope. And Advent is a time where we mark that hope, we reflect on that hope, and we prepare ourselves for Jesus' return. And it felt good to prepare ourselves by looking at how John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark prepared people for Jesus. So that's what we're doing during this season. Last week we talked about baptism, and I'm excited that we talked about baptism because then we get to celebrate baptism both this week and next week with different people that God has called to the sacrament of baptism. But today, we're going to talk about the second part of John the Baptist's message, which was repentance. So I'm going to read Mark 1.4. I'm going to read it two times, and then I invite you to join with me in prayer. Mark chapter 1, verse 4 says, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Once again, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Please join with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you that it's the hope we have in you that unites us. We thank you that that hope pulls us together, that that hope brings us here, Lord. We ask that you would prepare us for your return. Prepare us for the day that you will come back to this world, that you will restore it to what it was always meant to be, that death and suffering will be a distant memory, that your resurrection will be lived out and all those who are died will be raised, Lord, and this world will be made right again. Lord, we long for that day. Deepen our hope in the truth that you will return. And prepare us for that return, Lord. Speak to us now through your scriptures and through the testimony of John the Baptist. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So like I said, we're, we're focusing on how John the Baptist prepared people for Jesus' earthly ministry. And he did that with this message of baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Like I said, last week we talked about baptism, and this week we're focusing on repentance. And repentance is core to John the Baptist's message. We, we know that it's core, that John was known for calling people to repentance, because when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels that do have different changes, different ways they present things, one thing that's consistent with John the Baptist is the idea of repentance. But it's different in the three different Gospels. The way it's phrased is different in each of those three different Gospels. In Matthew... John tells people to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Luke, John tells people to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And then in Mark, we have what I just read, that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So notice that some things fall off. Luke and Mark don't have the kingdom of heaven and the reference to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew and Mark don't have the bearing fruits part of the message. And Mark focuses on baptism and tying repentance to baptism. So there's different changes, but the idea of repentance is always there. And what that means is 
when the early Christians were sitting around talking about John the Baptist, passing along stories of John the Baptist, by the time it got to the point of those stories being written down in the different gospels, there were different changes, but repentance stayed the same, which means that repentance was the thing that couldn't be changed. Repentance was so closely tied to John the Baptist that they couldn't let go of it. They wouldn't alter that. They wouldn't add anything to that. Repentance stayed consistent when talking about John the Baptist. John was known for repentance, for calling people to repentance. Remember, John the Baptist was a bit of an oddball. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore clothing that nobody else really wore. He ate a diet of locusts and honey, which is gross. But that was his diet. And at the end of the day, John the Baptist lost his life because he called somebody to repentance. That's how thoroughly defined by, John, by repentance John the Baptist was. King Herod had taken his brother's wife. John said that that's essentially adultery. You cannot do that. This is unlawful. And he called Herod to repent and to let go of his brother's wife. Herod's wife didn't enjoy this, and she tricked her husband into killing John the Baptist. Him calling somebody to repent of something cost him his life. It defined his life. And as we learn from the Gospel of Mark, and all the Gospels really, he prepared people for Jesus by calling them to repent. This was how he was getting people ready for Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, repentance is one of those Christian ideas that if you talk to people outside of the church, they don't really enjoy being told that they have to repent of things. And you talk to people inside the church, they enjoy telling other people to repent of things, but not so much practicing it themselves. It's not the most engaged idea actually practicing repentance ourselves. Again, it's much easier to call other people to repent than it is to accept John the Baptist's call for us to repent. And when I'm talking about repentance, the best definition that I could find of repentance came from the theologian John Calvin, a Reformed theologian that I quote fairly often. But Calvin described repentance as, it's when departing from ourselves, we turn to God. Departing from ourselves, we turn to God. The way Calvin came up with that definition was that he looked at the Hebrew word that's translated as repentance. He looked at the Greek word that's translated as repentance. And he looked at what those two terms tend to convey, and he pulled together this definition. Departing from ourselves, we turn to God. And this highlights, I think, what the big difference between confession and repentance are. Every week we come here together and we confess that we sin. And that's the first step of repentance. It's probably also the most challenging step of repentance. But repentance is different from confession. It goes a step further because it has that idea of turning away from what it is you confess and turning towards God. Of actually looking at something specific in your life. Not just confessing it, but then saying, I'm walking away from this. You can think of it this way. You're walking on a path, and that path leads towards destruction. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. Or that path is blocking other people from living the life that God wants for them. 
It's blocking you from living the life that God wants for you. And you're walking along that path, but when you repent, you turn in a different direction. You walk away from the direction that you were walking towards. And maybe you're not exactly where you want to be. You're still on that path, walking in the other direction, back to home. But you're still headed towards the direction that God wants for you. That's repentance. There's a debate in Christian tradition, the church history, of what comes first, faith or repentance. If you talk to some Baptist traditions, they will say repentance comes first. First you repent, and then you have faith. But in the Presbyterian tradition, the Reformed tradition that Stonebridge is a part of, it's the other way around. Repentance is a sign of faith. The only way we are able to repent is because we already have faith that God is faithful. And it's God's faithfulness that allows us to repent. Without that assurance, without that faith in God's character and God's faithfulness, we couldn't stand to look at ourselves. We couldn't stand to look at the wrongs that we do. We would live in blindness, ignoring what it is we need to repent of. But because we have faith, we can therefore repent. Faith allows us to admit when we are wrong. Now, repentance is more than confession, but confession is the first step to repentance. Admitting that we are wrong is the first step to repentance, and it's hard to do that. But there's one simple thing I think we can all remember that can help us admit when we are wrong, and that is the fact that you are wrong. I've always wanted to have a slide that just said that, and here we are today. Guess what? You are wrong. I'm looking at you, Derek. I'm kidding. Well, no, but not. You are, you're included in this too. You're wrong. And it's not just specifically you. I'm wrong also. It's not that you specifically are wrong. It's that every single human being at various points and in different ways throughout their life is going to be wrong. We're going to mess up. We're going to harm other people. We're going to say things that are hurtful to people. We're going to learn things be taught things that we thought were fine, and then all of a sudden we're going to learn it's actually harmful. Human depravity is true. No human being except for Jesus is ever going to be perfect, is ever going to get through life without doing something harmful to somebody else. So in any given moment, in some way, you can just trust in the fact that you are wrong. But it's not just you. We all are wrong. All of us are wrong at some point. It's easy to admit that in the abstract, but I will confess it's much harder when it's something specific. And just a side note here. If you ever have a leader, somebody who would lift themselves up as a leader in any sort of area, but they won't admit that they are wrong ever, run there's something unhealthy going on there. If that person cannot admit just basic truth that they are wrong, that's somebody who is unhealthy, who is not leading you in a good direction. Because the truth of each and every one of us is we are flawed, we are failed, we are wrong. And it's not about us being right all the time. It's about us pointing to the God who is right. It's about us pointing to the God who is faithful, us pointing to the God who is good, who's never wrong. 
So don't follow somebody who admits that they're, who, who can't admit that they are wrong. It's like admitting we're wrong is, is weak and we're not supposed to be weak when in reality, the apostle Paul says that God's strength is shown through our weakness. It's like when we admit we're wrong, we're afraid that people are going to stop listening to us, that they're going to think we're always going to be wrong or that we're going to be defined by what it was we were wrong about, that we're never going to escape that definition, that once we admit we're wrong, we're always going to be viewed as being wrong and failed and flawed. But the truth is, most of the time when you admit that you're wrong about something, things get better. Most of the time, admitting you're wrong is the first step towards freedom. I have a rather silly example in my own life about this. I'm getting antsy, so I have to stand up now and move around. But years ago, long, long time ago, when I was young and foolish and naive, about, you know, four years ago. <laughs> this is a little bit longer than that, though. How long have I been married now? So about six years ago. My wife and I were engaged. And... Somewhere along the way in my 20s, I was in my early 30s, and somewhere along the way in my 20s, I got it in my head that I really don't like any onions. That I just don't like it. I think what happened is I ate a red onion in a salad, and we all agree red onions are disgusting and gross, and nobody should ever eat those, right? We can all agree there. Yeah. Oh, okay. There, there you go. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Um, but they're disgusting. Accept it. Um, so I got in my head that I don't like any onions whatsoever. So when Emily and I were dating, we both cook. We both like to cook. I said to her, hey, when, when you're cooking, please just leave onions out. I don't like any onions. So she said, okay. And then months went by, and one night she fixed a meal of chicken and dumplings. Great comfort food. Loved it. Tasted so good. One of my favorite meals. And I was bringing the dishes into the kitchen. And I looked, on the cutting board was a cut-up onion. <laughs> and I, I, I went into this very ill-advised moment of... Like, you betrayed me. <laughs> How could you put onions in this? I told you not to. And she said, okay, I forgot. And I said, How could you do this? I don't like onions. And she said, You just ate a meal where you loved it with onions. And then she pointed out to me, Do you realize how many meals that you order from restaurants have onions in them? She pointed out all these different meals. And I had a moment then. I could say to her, Don't ever lie to me again. Or I could say, Clearly, you're right. I actually like onions, and this is silly. You know, in God's grace, I actually chose the latter. And I said, okay, I'm wrong. I'm being foolish here. And do you know what happened in that moment? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing bad happened. She didn't say over and over again, you were wrong about the onion, so you're wrong about this. Every single time I tried to say anything. She laughed about it, and we actually grew deeper in that moment. Admitting you're wrong is actually one of the first steps towards freedom. If anything happened in that story, I now get to enjoy many more good foods while not having this completely irrational and silly belief that I don't like something that obviously I do like. Now, that's a silly example. It's a very silly example. But the, it's true for even deeper things, for even more harmful things. The moment that you admit you're wrong is the first step towards freedom. And repentance ultimately leads to freedom. Admitting that you're doing something that is harming somebody else 
or that's harming yourself. Admitting that there's something in your life that is blocking you from the life God would have for you. That is the first step towards embracing the life God would have for you. So it might be hard to admit that you're wrong, but admitting that you are wrong, admitting that you harm other people, admitting that you do things that harm others, it's a basic part of following Jesus. And I don't know why it's sometimes so hard for Christians and Christian leaders to embrace that, because the Bible knows this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10 is really clear on this. 1 John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's why I say any Christian leader who won't admit that they're wrong, who won't acknowledge that, that's not the message the Bible teaches us. The truth is, every single one of us is wrong. We all fail. We all fall short. The point isn't that we would always be perfect. The point is that we would point to the God who is perfect and that we would acknowledge those ways in which we fail. Not so that we feel guilty, not so we feel terrible, but so that we can turn to something better and we can remember that in the midst of our failure, God loves us deeply. God doesn't care that you're wrong. God knows that you're wrong. God cares when you harm somebody else, but God still loves you and is working to help you to not harm other people, to not harm yourself. And that moment of confession is what makes repentance possible. You can't walk away from something until you acknowledge that it's in your life and you acknowledge that you on your own power can't stop it. In 12-step programs, that's actually one of the first steps, acknowledging your powerlessness, that you can't repent of your own power. It's God who makes this possible. It's God who turns you on a different path, different direction. And the moment you acknowledge that you're on the wrong path is when God will work to turn you, to change you, and repentance begins to take hold, and you begin walking in a different direction. No one asks you to be perfect on your own or to overcome the sin in your life. Jesus is the one who overcomes sin. What is asked of you is to acknowledge it, to pray for repentance, and to turn your face towards God, that you might walk away from whatever it is in your life that is blocking you. So John the Baptist, he prepared people for Jesus' earthly ministry by calling them to repentance. And he prepares us for Jesus' return now by calling us to repentance. So I invite you to reflect and to reflect on yourself. Don't at this moment start thinking about somebody else and saying that person needs to repent of this or that person needs to repent of that. Right now, I want you to reflect on yourself. What is there in your life that you need to repent of? We all have something. What is there that is taking you down the wrong path? What is there that you can turn from, that you can acknowledge and lay at the feet of God and say, Jesus, call me on a different path? I don't know what it is for you. There's any number of things. But repent. Accept that invitation. And then don't 
just do it in your own head. I want you to take one more step on the path towards repentance. Find somebody else you trust. Somebody you know that won't judge you. Confess to that person. Somebody that you know will hold it in trust. Confess to that person. Ask them to hold you accountable. Ask them to help you walk along this path of repentance. Reach out to somebody else. Confess and repent. And experience the freedom that Jesus offers us. Jesus calls us to repentance, not to shame us, not to guilt us, but so that we can experience the life that he offers us. And the truth of repentance is that what underlies it all is the fact that God is faithful. Oftentimes you hear people call to repent and they start doing fire and brimstone and telling you that God is holding you over the pits of hell. I'm not saying that today. I'm saying that God is faithful and that's why you can be free to repent. God is going to embrace you. God is going to love you. God is going to hold you with open arms. God is faithful. And because of that, you can repent and walk away from whatever it is that is destroying you and your life or destroying others around you. So prepare yourself for Jesus and repent. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you love us, that you will uphold us. We thank you that you will carry us. And we thank you that in those moments when we need to repent, you are faithful. So help us to turn away from whatever it is that is blocking us from experiencing the life you'd offer us. Help us to trust in your faithfulness and admit when we are wrong, admit when we harm others, Lord. Admit when we do damage to the people around us. Whether we knew it, whether we didn't, help us to acknowledge that in some way we all are wrong. And help us to see specifically in our lives where we have fallen short, Lord, so that we can repent and turn towards you. We know that you hold us in your arms. And we thank you for that. And Holy Father, as we continue our worship through tithes and offerings now, bless this offering so that people around us in our community can also repent. They can walk away from those things that are harming them. They can walk away from those things that are doing damage to themselves and to others, Lord. That they can walk on a path towards you, towards the life that you give, the life that is full of love, full of grace, full of mercy. The life that is abundant, Lord, that you offer us. Use this offering so that we can help them repent and turn towards you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
soul I give you control Consume me from the inside out Lord, let justice and praise Restoring us a child 